So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's boldest environmental news hour. And we are on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your much appreciated local community radio station, beautifully running, still and forever. And we're also proud members of the Harbinger Podcast Network. Yeah, that was announced this week. Baby grew up. Baby got a network, Mama. We're transmitting from the future. Or something. Community of progressive listener-supported podcasts tr- transmitting from the world to come. Some people think of progressive as a dirty word. We don't. We don't. No. We like we it. Don't. Progressive. It's psychedelic. I recently heard prog- the word progressive is a psychedelic concept. That's what they told me on YouTube. That is positive. Harbinger, a community of progressive listener-supported podcasts transmitting from the world to come. And the That's voices you've been hearing, if you're listening right now, are David Hostetter, Stefan Hostetter, Hostetter. Yeah. Yeah. And Lauren Latour. I promise it's usually a little bit tighter than this off the top. Oh, well, I'll cut this down into... I'll put a corset. I'll, I'll strap a corset on this bad boy. Stefan's going to... Well, we're going to do climate news. Stefan's going to interview Saba Ibrahim from the Climate Emergency Unit, right? Correct. That was started by Seth Klein, and now they have different chapters or something, or what's going on? Yeah, she's the Ontario organizer, and we'll be talking about the Youth Climate Corps and the idea behind it. And if you are a new listener and you want to learn more about the Climate Emergency Unit, A, you could just go to their website. They have a ton of great resources. B, Stefan and I interviewed Seth probably close to a year ago now. Anyway, back in the archives somewhere, there's an interview with Seth when, um, Seth Klein, rather, when the Climate Emergency Unit launched. So we're happy to have him back. Right. And before we get into those things, Lauren is currently planning on attending COP27 in Egypt. Yeah. Sometimes we like to start off these episodes with a bit of an unhinged, unscripted rant. And today that's my job. Um, and yeah, just wanted to hop on here really quickly. Ooh, that's Zoom language. My bad. Sorry, guys. Mm, um, <laughs> just wanted to hop on a call. Um, no, because uh, Naomi Klein, sister of Climate Emergency Unit, Seth Klein, um, released a piece via The Intercept last week um, about COP27 being hosted in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is um, a city in Egypt, and the implications of that, given the fact that Egypt is um, under an incredibly repressive regime right now, has been since the 2013 since um since like the Arab Spring basically, um and yeah, what is it what does it mean that all of these climate justice quote unquote organizers and activists and actors are gathering in a place um that has been the like has been actively um not just like persecuting people and kind of like 
I don't know. I feel like sometimes we say it's like, yes, sure. I have been arrested as a climate activist, but that that's not the same. <laughs> it is not the same experience as, as folks who are currently um, in prisons in Egypt, of which dozens have been built in recent years. Like they've like had to like speed up and build new prisons simply to accommodate all of the people that they have arrested in recent history. Um, and they're undergoing torture. They're undergoing surveillance, um, digital and otherwise. Um, and it, although I maybe don't necessarily agree with absolutely everything Naomi brings up, um, I think in some ways there's a bit of erasure happening with some of the really good local organizers and activists from Egypt who are doing good work and trying to shift the conversation within the cop space. And I think she maybe brushes over that a little bit, but, but for the most part, the points she's making within the piece are really good. And it's a conversation that we do need to be having. It's definitely happening like within cop spaces within what we call CSO spaces or civil society organizing spaces, but making it more so part of the general conversation that circulates around cop and always hits kind of a bit of a fever pitch in November, I think is really, really important. So I would encourage listeners to check out that, um, piece in the intercept. There's also uh, kind of an accompanying webinar that the intercept put up on YouTube. So that's on their YouTube channel. And then additionally, it's not from the intercept, but uh, the human rights watch put out a really awesome kind of fact sheet report back in um, September. Um, and if you want to find it, like search human rights watch and then Egypt colon government undermining environmental groups. And it's a really, really thorough um, kind of like, actually there's a couple human rights watch has done some really, really awesome research, um, and provide some really, really good information on like exactly what kind of a regime Egypt is under right now. Um, and just how these people are being oppressed and repressed and how damaging it is that, uh, we're allowing Egypt to kind of like not only greenwash, but like human rights wash, um, their actions, um, as all of these people gather in the country next month. It's a complicated factor no matter what, right? Like we're going to talk about another story in a bit um, with this with Drax in the UK, which again, sort of shows the problems of trying to solve climate change or think about climate change without considering an internationalist response. One of the biggest risks that, that climate action right now, and especially if we go this really tech heavy route that seems to be where we're being pushed into, we'll run into is how are you truly exemplifying internationalist solidarity while taking climate change seriously? For instance, it's like, <laughs> it's one thing for like myself and my colleagues and, and a couple hundred primarily white settler actors to come over from a country like Canada and go to Egypt and engage for two weeks and then pick up and leave. But like, the people who are who are left there, who are trying to organize and trying to shift what's happening in their country in Egypt on a daily basis, um, are, are being left in at risk of extreme harm. So, so something for folks who are attending COP this year in person to be aware of is like, be careful how your actions might, um, might reflect on folks who live there and folks who are trying to organize on a daily basis and make sure you're not causing them harm and make sure you're not putting them in risky positions. Um, because it's like very, very real, tangible bodily harm that, that some of these folks are coming into. Um, and I, and I messed up the title. There's a couple different human rights watch pieces that have come out lately, but the, the one that I meant to reference is literally just called cop 27 Q and a, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a really fantastic resource. If you're, if you're looking to learn more. All right. First piece of news. 
economist Robin Allen has put together a new report on the financing of the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, or TMX, for West Coast environmental law. TMX is, of course, a huge pipeline project running from Alberta to the West Coast that was purchased from Kinder Morgan by the Canadian government four years ago. The cost of building it has been rising since its purchase for $7.4 billion, and in February, it came out that it would cost at least $21.4 billion. Canada's own parliamentary budget officer stated in June that the project would no longer be profitable. That statement was based on an analysis that assumed a 40-year lifespan for the pipeline. Former Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson indeed stated last year that TMX would operate for 30 to 40 years. Finance Minister Christia Freeland, however, is now relying on analyses from the banks TD and BMO that strangely assume a 100-year lifespan for the pipeline. Contracts between TMX and the oil producers who will be using the pipeline currently only stretch 20 years into the future. It's these contracts that are supposed to make the pipeline profitable, since the producers in Alberta will have to pay to use it in order to get their oil to the coast. Robin Allen's analysis has found, however, that oil producers are not being asked to pay enough to cover the pipeline's costs, which means that Canada will have to forgive the pipeline's debts. The pipeline's debts are owed to Canadian taxpayers. If the contracts remain as they are, Canadians will then essentially be handing $17 billion directly to oil companies. Allen also found that in order to maintain the veneer of profitability, Canada has set up a fake company called TMP Finance. The Department of Finance issues money to Canada's internal investment corporation called CDEV, which, instead of giving money directly to the pipeline company, sends it first to TMP. TMP Finance is a fake company because it has no employees and its board of directors are all employed by CDEV. Allen found that Trans Mountain's losses are being officially taken by TMP Finance rather than Trans Mountain. The government stated earlier this year that no more public money will be put into this project. In fact, Ottawa is planning to spend almost $2 billion more on the pipeline in the next two years alone. There are, I would say, a couple things that I'd want to highlight from the story. The first is just how emblematic it is of the current Liberal government. The project TMX, the pipeline, was sold as a necessary evil to pay to help pay for climate action and even a tool to work towards reconciliation with Indigenous populations. We were told that opposing the pipeline, that those opposing the pipeline were simply too ideological and didn't live in reality. And now, years later, what are we going to get? A pipeline that is responsible for the targeted harassment of the Suepic tiny house warriors who have been protecting their unceded land. A pipeline that seems very clearly to be one that will lose money for the Canadian taxpayer in the long run, all while locking us into more fossil fuel use to justify its existence over the coming decades. And yet, instead of coming out and just owning that they were wrong, that this is increasingly likely to, to backfire, we get this extensive effort to use creative accounting tricks and obfuscation, which is a theme not just with the federal government, but across Canada. I, I say right now because I, it's feeling more obvious to me right now, but I'm willing to accept that maybe it has always been this way. But 
governments and government agencies like the RCMP have seemingly all decided that delaying and obscuring information as much as they like is the right call. And honestly, if you want to fight disinformation, one unbelievably necessary step is to make actual information available to people. Every time government agencies try to hide information, they make more space for conspiracy, and that seems like a problem that they have no interest in addressing. I think one of the things I'm honing in on here is coming down to sort of like the wild card that is Christia Freeland, who I I am never quite able to wrap my brain around because I I because I I struggle with her and what her motivations are and what her understanding is and like it's she seems to be like a a rational lady who 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 is who is smart um and I just don't understand how even if you're just looking at this from a strictly financial standpoint and you truly don't care about climate and you truly don't care about people and you truly don't care about like respecting indigenous sovereignty I don't understand how when and I uh, I can't remember the exact report I feel like Dave and I talked about this earlier this year on an episode when you might have been absent stuff but it was like there was a report that came out earlier this year that basically asserted that there is no world in which TMX is going to make money. Either we lose money now and we don't have anything to show for it, or we lose money later. We still don't have anything to show for it. But what we do have is like increased warming. And I, and I just don't understand how, when your own government agency is coming out saying, Hey, you know what? I understand there's like that sunk cost feeling where you sort of feel like in for a penny in for a pound, I'm already in this hole, might as well keep digging. But like, there is no, there is no benefit to that. There's not even a benefit from like a voter standpoint, because I'm sorry, you're not winning votes in Alberta. Stop pandering to them with this pipeline that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't really make anybody money and just assert the reality of the situation to the rest of the world and win our, I'm not saying that you can really win our trust back, but like win a modicum of our trust back, you know, because it's like, yes, that would be a really, really hard narrative to sell, but I think, and I have to believe that we're Trudeau and Freeland to come out and be like, hey, we made a mistake with this. We're hemorrhaging money. We are continuing to hemorrhage money. We will have nothing to show for it. We have to abandon this literal pipe dream. Like, I have to feel like there would be some benefit to that. And people would be like, hey, at least you were honest with us, you know, like, and yes, the conservatives would have a field day with it, but the conservatives are having a field day with it regardless. So like cut your losses. I don't like, I, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, I, there are a million questions that I would ask Christia Freeland, but like, that is one of them. It's like, please explain to me your rationale here because it has been proven time and time again, that unless you're reading this TD and RBC report, we're not making any cash. But exactly. Like one thing I didn't actually end up including in my notes when I was reading with this was just how much it feels like the liberal government wants to always act like they're the adults in the room and that everyone in the populace is just a child banging their fists against the wall. They literally they literally created a shell corporation for their own government-owned corporation. I mean, they, they just have they have profound contempt for their constituents i think like and well that's the only way to read it right that's that's the level of obfuscation at that point that's the only way to understand is like they just don't want you to know what's actually happening which is a terrible position no and and you're right it's just it's so frustrating because i genuinely think there's a world where it's like i take people like my parents for instance 
for the most part, lifelong liberal voters. I think they've both occasionally gone NDP in the past, depending on like the leader or whatever. Um, but like solidly, like pretty, pretty centrist people, pretty centrist people who occasionally like, like something that Bernie says, you know, and they are people that if, if you were to ask them, they'd probably be like, yeah, I mean, like, I know Lauren doesn't want oil and gas around, but like, it'll probably be around. And yet, and yet, if the liberal government were to come out full-throated, full chest and say, this was a mistake, we need to transition in 20 years and we are going to do it in 20 years. This is how we're going to do it. And this, and like, and we are like fully 100% completely behind this. This is how we are changing the government. I genuinely think that you could get the majority, maybe a slight majority, but a majority of voters and constituents behind a plan like that, because they would feel that it comes from a place of honesty. And as long as you're like fully throwing yourself into the effort, it can be done, but people would have to believe that they're fully throwing themselves into the effort as opposed to like what Trudeau and Freeland have done with this pipeline, which is just like pussyfooting around the truth for the last four years and ultimately like winning nobody and just kind of like allowing, like allowing like their, their, their baseline voters to be like, ah, oh, well, I, I mean, I guess they know best, you know? I know it's losing us money, but I guess they know best. And you've still got the conservatives giving them the middle finger. Like those votes are never going to come over to your side. Leave them. Leave them. Uh, but I honestly think if they were if they were to do that, that 20 year project would have to have a, a socialist taste to it, a socialist flavor to it, to so that everybody's on board. Right. And then that would cause it to be sabotaged. That would cause our government's efforts in that to be sabotaged by the the true powers which are international uh private international powers they have already bought the pipeline right like the idea of nationalizing this pipeline has actually already occurred which is kind of a remarkable thing because it was seen which is one of the things like people are talking about nationalizing the oil, oil industry or nationalizing the oil industry as a way to sort of you know reduce its emissions uh over time and that seems like a huge socialist effort and yet we nationalize this pipeline already but we've nationalized it in favor of the private actors right like in the in the analysis we've just cited from robin allen what's probably going to happen is that canadians pay for a pipeline that benefits private corporations so it's a subsidy at this point but this point, yes. if they made the comp the, those oil companies pay enough then conceivably there's a, a national profit but as it yeah. stands it's just a subsidy but i'm saying but i'm saying that's why it's not remarkable because then that's why it wouldn't be sabotage because it's still a subsidy rather than a national project all right so the cbc has found that britain's largest power plant is cutting down virgin forest in British Columbia and burning it back in the UK and is calling it renewable energy. The power station is called Drax. Wood pellet burning is considered renewable because you can grow new trees. Burning wood, however, is worse for the climate than burning coal. Drax has claimed that the wood it uses is waste wood, but it's become clear that Drax is at least partially using old growth forest in BC. Drax is backed by the BC government and has plans to greatly expand its operations in the province. Conservationist Michelle Connolly states in the CBC that the only way for Drax to expand its logging practice in British Columbia 
is for the provincial government to continue allowing the company to log virgin forest. The UK is subsidizing the company. Greenpeace recently found that in the United States, Drax was polluting black and low-income communities with illegal amounts of chemical emissions from wood chip plants. In late September, a UK Labour Party event sponsored by Drax ejected a climate protester. The Guardian quoted a Drax spokesperson at the time as saying, quote, A very small number of people attending the event tried to disrupt the discussion and were unwilling to listen to the views of the panelists who were in agreement that in order to reach net zero, the world needs to use a range of energy solutions, including wind, solar, biomass, and bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. They also stated, quote, Climate change is the biggest challenge this generation faces. Over the last decade, Drax has reduced its carbon emissions from fossil fuels by almost 100% using sustainable biomass. Notice how that sentence is crafted. That's absolutely lovely. Has reduced its carbon emissions from fossil fuels by using sustainable biomass. <laughs> Not its carbon emissions. Right. I don't even know exactly where to begin with this story. But the way the BC NDP is trying to, trying to discredit Anjali Abadurai and further alienating, alienating their environmental base has got to be one angle. You know, for years, folks have been trying to get real protection for forests in BC, only to be met with delay tactics and the loss of more old growth forests. And now during a leadership campaign, which they hope to be in a, a coronation of David Ebby, they are treating the activist wing of the party as if it's a hostile takeover. I mean, if the NDP refuses to be a home for activists, then not only will they lose power and fail to gain it in other jurisdictions, but it leaves a large constituency of the populace without a political home. And then there's the biomass and climate angle. We so often use, quote unquote, renewable as a synonym for carbon free, which this kind of situation makes clear is a pretty big mistake. The UK, gov the UK government is giving this giving Drax $2 million of subsidies per day because of its ability to say that it's renewable. And sure, I can see the argument to be made about truly burning leftover wood waste, but the issue is that in this capitalist system with such poor oversight, it's hard to trust that, even a, that any project won't eventually go for the most ubiquitous and cheap options, and the likelihood that that is going to be scraps cleaned up off of other processes is very unlikely. And neither of those things touch on the environmental racism component of, dra of Drax directly polluting income-deserving communities. And so in the end, the story kind of collectively tells a pretty good analogy for everything that's wrong with many of our attempts to take on climate change. You know, in Drax, we have a company whose entire about us on their website reads, quote, Drax Group's ambition is to become a carbon negative business in 20, by 2030 through an innovative greenhouse gas removal technology. That's the whole thing. And yet the company itself is built on a colonial extraction of natural resources, destroying virgin forests on unceded indigenous, on unceded indigenous land at the behest of a supposed left-leaning government who are actively trying to expel environmental activists from its ranks. You know, they are then taking those pellets, then taking that wood and shipping them south to equity-deserving communities where they pollute the air with excess chemicals, all before shipping them across an ocean to be hailed as quote-unquote green fuel and receive millions of taxpayer dollars per day for the effort. I don't have too many thoughts on this one, but did just want to really touch briefly on, on the, the piece about Anjali and all of the like ridiculous manufactured 
controversy around her campaign and how like so par for the course and unsurprising it is from establishment NDP, but like still so utterly disappointing. We don't necessarily need to dig into it because I understand this is kind of like getting off topic. Maybe we can talk about it on a later episode, but like Anjali is like, she's a, like a proven organizer, a proven activist. This is not her first rodeo. This is not the first time she's run. When she ran at the federal level um, in the last election, she came very, very close to winning her seat. And in that instance, had the full party support at the federal level. But now that she's running for provincial leadership, all of a sudden you have this party who just wants David, is it Ebby, 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 um, to 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 be in power and it's so frustrating to see them pull out all the stops to try to discredit her she's signed up something amazing like 10,000 new young people not entirely young people but a lot of young people and a lot of um folks from the climate movement to the NDP because they're so enthusiastic and they're ready to vote for her and instead the NDP has turned around and said like you've stolen these votes from the Green Party this is a hostile takeover we don't trust you blah 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 like it's it is so, 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 so frustrating seeing the establishment sort of pushing back on a young person who is, and and when I say young, she's not like 21. Like she's, (laughs) it's not like she's too young and doesn't have the experience. It's like, she is absolutely an appropriate age and of an appropriate experience level to be running for this position. And she has the chops and she has this groundswell of energy and people power behind her. And instead of seeing this as the incredible opportunity that it is, you've got the NDP party establishment being like, Ooh, I don't know. seems a little bit too rad for us. And it's, it makes you want to bang your head against a wall. Yeah. It's, a complete lack of interest in having an energized base, right? It's it's this idea that an energized base might have opinions that you might not like. So ah, scary. Rather than like embracing the fact that people can feel connected to the political system and see real change in their lives might be a groundbreaking experience for our generation. I don't know. Yeah, but but no, in, instead you're yeah, they're they're supporting a candidate who doesn't come out against something like Drax as vehemently. And now we're going to go to a little bit of music and return with Stefan and Lauren speaking with Saba Ibrahim, the Ontario lead director. What's the position? Organizer. organizer. The Ontario organizer with the Climate Emergency Unit. We are here with Sabah Ibrahim, Ontario organizer with the Climate Emergency Unit, to talk about their Youth Climate Corps idea. I'm Sephora Center. I'm here with Lauren Latour. Thanks so much for being here, Sabah. Thank you for having me. All right, let's dig right in. So you're with the Climate Emergency Unit. So yeah. quickly for um, listeners who might not have heard our previous interview with Seth Klein last year, or who just might not have heard about the Climate Emergency Unit, can you give us like a quick kind of 411 on what the CEU is and sort of what it stemmed from. 
Yeah, of course. So the CEU is a project of the David Suzuki Institute, not the foundation. It should be it should be mentioned the the institute, which is a separate entity, and it's essentially the brainchild of Seth Klein, who you've had on the show before. Seth is the author of a book called The Good War, which is analogizing the current climate emergency to World War II, and essentially lays out the approach that Canada needs to take to to defeat the climate emergency. So to win in the context of the climate emergency, just like they won in the context of the Second World War. And Seth's contention and ours as well as the climate emergency unit is, we're not going to win this unless the government and Canada as a whole are acting in emergency mode. They're doing the things that are needed to meet the emergency as an emergency. There's been some progress towards recognizing the climate emergency as an emergency that needs to be treated as such. But in terms of meeting that recognition with appropriate action, it hasn't really been done particularly well. I'm trying to be diplomatic here. So essentially what our job is, is to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure that Canada, over a very small window of the next couple of years, does what it needs to do to meet the climate emergency. So the CEU is, a, is just a five-year project. We are essentially deeming ourselves obsolete at the end of a five-year period because that's the window we have to win this before it's too late. By the end of that five years, we'll have either done our jobs and the CEU won't be necessary anymore, or we won't be able to do anything beyond what we've already done in that period to win. So that's what we do. And we have a couple of markers or indicators for when we we know or can recognize that a government is an emergency mode. They're laid out on our website and also in Seth's book. Seth is the one who originally came up with them. And in short, they are, the government will spend what it takes to win. It will create new institutions to get the job done. It'll shift from voluntary and incentive-based policies to mandatory measures. It will tell the truth. <laughs> about the severity of the crisis, and it will communicate a sense of urgency to, to resolve it. We'll also leave no one behind. And the last and arguably the most important point recognizes that Indigenous leadership and rights are essential to winning this fight. So that is a hopefully brief enough overview of what the CEU is. Yeah, thanks so much for that. It's always really interesting to hear about the CEU and specifically that sort of like that five-year window that you folks have emphasized and like so whole so wholeheartedly thrown yourselves into. So yeah, always wishing you guys the best of luck and sending you good energy because it's you've got a you've got a tough what four years, three and a half yeah. years out of you. Yeah. Year one is year one is finished. And so we're now into three and a half, four years. So yeah. It's it's becoming more of an emergency for us as well. There's like this you know, Uberos of emergency going on. Yeah, for sure. And so the what we're here to talk about today is is what you've called the Youth Climate Corps, which is one part of, I guess, how you would see emergency response to be. And again, I do think it will get into a bit of the historical precedent before in a, in a bit. But before that, can you just give us an overview, you know, of what you mean by a Youth Climate Corps? Yeah, would be happy to. So one of the markers that I just mentioned is that a government will create new institutions to get the job done. So what we envision is the Youth Climate Corps could be one of these new institutions. And essentially what it would be is a government-based entity that provides young people with the opportunity to step up and meet the climate crisis with action of their own. It would be a, a program of jobs and training that would 
that would allow a young person to show up to say, I want to do something that is going to help Canada fight climate change, to meet the climate crisis. And no matter what level of preparedness they have for that, no matter what level of training they have for that coming into it, it won't matter. They will just be received and told, great, we have a place for you. Come on in. We're going to show you what it is that you can do with your skills and your motivations and your desires and the amount of commitment you can give us. And we're going to give you something to do that's going to meaningfully help this country address climate change. That's what we envision the YCC to be, the EU Climate Corps to be. So, you know, just a, just a little easy to easy to throw together a little initiative. Yeah, yeah, very, very organic. Not at all, not at all a big heavy lift. So obviously you referenced sort of this World War II level effort and kind of pulling from the energy of like, kind of like the, the togetherness of, of moments like that. And I feel like, well, we know Youth Climate Corps kind of also has has its roots in some historically operated programs and ones that still operate today, like the Peace Corps, for instance. So can you tell us a little bit more about sort of like the historical precedent of programs like this and maybe like successes or or failures or, or how you're drawing from those models in, in envisioning your Youth Climate Corps? So I don't think there's there's been an effort that is similar to this in the sense that it hasn't been youth focused with the intent of combating climate change. But to kind of throw back to the Second World War, there was a mass mobilization of young people during the Second World War. And there was a lot of enlistment for military service and not just the kind of military service that sent people to the front lines. There was this massive turnout of young people who wanted to do what they could. And what they could do was not always, you know, joining the, the fighting corps. There's so many, I, I can't even kind of shortlist them because there were so many wartime related jobs to be done. And at that point, this is exactly what the government did. It said, we have a place for you. Even though there wasn't an existing structure to receive them, a lot of the training programs and a lot of the, the mobilization structures that would have directed people into the jobs they needed to do based on what they were their abilities were and their skills were were kind of being cobbled together. You no, know, the Canada wasn't prepared for a second world war to hit and to deal with this influx of young people offering to help, but they did it anyway. So honestly, that's probably the only initiative of the scale that we're hoping the YCC will hit that I can think of because other initiatives have actually been carried out in Canada. They've been done on a much smaller scale, and they've succeeded. There are multiple training programs, the intent of which is to kind of recruit young people and give them a purpose, and then send them out into the world with the training that they've that they've gotten and the experience they've gotten. But none of those have hit the scale that is necessary. And none of them have really focused in the way that we hope the YCC will focus on this sort of lifelong preparation. They tend to be a sort of, this is going to be a a one-year, two-year interim in your life, and it's not necessarily going to funnel you into something better or help you to take that next step in your career after it's done. It's it's going to be a bit like military service where you, you know, you come in and then you leave and it's just this two-year blank in your life where you might have had some training that's going to help you out later on and you might not have. That's not what we want the YCC to be. This is meant to be something that will take people's enthusiasm their concern for the climate crisis, their need to do something about it and channel that into positive activity that's also going to then help them afterwards. It's not just about exploiting young people's need to do something, their willingness to do something. It's about rewarding that interest and that commitment with training and job skills and 
a path towards the future that will benefit them as well. Yeah, yeah. So so I think something that did come to mind, and so like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like in some ways, I feel like when we talk about this sort of like wartime style effort, Green New Deal, though that's not necessarily like the language or, or verbiage you're using, but it's like a throwback, a reference to like the WPA or what was it like the work, um, the Works Progress Administration that was definitely more of an American phenomenon and like less wartime related, but more depression era related. So yeah, in, in any way, is it like stealing or not, not borrowing and referencing that kind of initiative? Yes, very much so. Any initiative that has sought to take people's desire to do something and channeled it into a collective effort is kind of a spiritual predecessor to this. It's also like it reminds me of, and there's a very tenuous connection here, but maybe not so tenuous because we're in Canada, but the home front in Britain, in the United Kingdom, during the First World War, none of those people were fighters. They were doing things like starting gardens. They were doing things like sewing parachutes out of silk. They were collecting bots and bands from the neighborhood to kind of get together enough metal to send off to the factories. There was a complete, there was an enormous range of jobs that if you were to think about it just on the surface of it, you would never in a million years associate with a, a wartime effort. Someone saying that they're producing X amount of carrots a week in their garden would not on the on the surface of it seem to be something that assists the war movement. And that's kind of something that we're trying to integrate into the YCC as well. It's perhaps not the, you know, the greatest analogy, but the concept of work that does not on the surface of it seem to fit in with climate action as people kind of know it based on what little they know about the climate effort. That's kind of stuff that we want to, that's the kind of stuff that we want to emphasize as well. It's not just about, you know, clean technology or working in public works to do stuff about mitigating flooding and impacts. There's a lot of other jobs that are just as important for meeting the climate crisis that have nothing to do with the kind of nuts and bolts of climate mitigation. Yeah, for sure. I actually, I would love to get into that a little bit more because that was one of the pieces I found so interesting about your policy brief was the inclusion of things like care work and, and stuff like that. But before we get there, I feel like I can guess your answer to this question, but I just <laughs> maybe put a little finer point on it. Why youth specifically? You know, why not have this to be sort of a more general jobs guarantee, but specifically you're targeting youth and obviously there's a, an intention there. So what makes that so important? Well, to be and to be very honest, when we, when the, the germ of this idea started up, when this was just kind of an idea that was being tossed around at the CEU and it's a released incarnation, it was envisioned as more of a civilian climate court, which is a term that has been used in the States. And we still haven't kind of entirely let go of that, but the idea would be that a, a youth climate corps is one element of what Canada needs to do. A lot of the things that would be included in a civilian climate corps could and should be included in other aspects of Canada's response. So the main reason I think is that young people are the ones kind of staring down the barrel of climate change. They're the ones who are going to bear the brunt of it. They've inherited this catastrophe that was not of their making. They have fewer resources to deal with it, both emotionally, mentally, but also practically, than any generation before them. They've, they're facing job insecurity on a scale that is, I don't want to say unprecedented, but hasn't been this bad in a long time. They're also, despite all of these things, despite all of these contributing factors that you would not blame them if it kind of led them into, into inaction and despair, they're on the front lines of the battle. The climate change movement as it exists now is being led by young people. They're doing their best to channel with the limited resources available to them to channel their, their recognition of this crisis and their need to do something about it into, a, into whatever it is they can do. They're leading all of the you know, climate justice movements. They recognize not only that it's a 
crisis, but the right way to confront the crisis. They recognize that what we've tried before hasn't worked, and they recognize that there needs to be this radical overhauling. And at this point, and you know, maybe I'm being too cynical here, but it does feel like they feel like they have so little to lose that they may as well try and do something drastic. And I would never ever want anyone, let alone a young person who's kind of, you know, looking forward to the rest of their life to feel as though they have nothing to lose. But on the other hand, that kind of willingness to do something drastic and to not be beholden to the old, you know, rules about what can and can't be done or what shouldn't shouldn't be done and, and what we shouldn't do because it's perhaps not wise or, or too risky. That attitude is something we need. We need people who are not going to be kind of beholden to the structures of the past that have you know, clearly not worked for us because if they had, we wouldn't be in a climate emergency. So all of which to say, this is, I think, a necessary endeavor. I think Canada needs something like this. It's not just that it's a good idea. It's the fact that it's so much of a no-brainer that sometimes I'm shocked that no one has kind of brought this up before. And of course they have. I, I don't want to be conceited enough to suggest that we're the, the first people to ever come up with something like this. But we certainly want to be an organization that doesn't let it kind of get lost to the mists of time or become an idea that people talk about for a bit and then forget. Yeah. I hope that answered your question. Um, so like this, I'm, I don't, I don't intend for this to be like a weedsy process oriented questions, just <laughs> to sort of get, get a, a larger understanding of, of what it is that you're advocating for. Can you tell me a little bit about like, I'm, I'm imagining, and I believe based on what I've read, it's like, this is a government program that you're, that you're suggesting and advocating for. Is it federal? Is it provincial? Is it a combination of the two? Is it like a private public partnership? How is, how is it that you folks are envisioning this would, would roll out? We're envisioning this as a government program, and the only reason we're envisioning it as that is because, again, we we have to get into this question of scale. If it's privately led, it's almost impossible that it will reach the level that we need it to reach. It can't be as all-encompassing as we want it to be if it's a private or entity. It's just, it just won't be. So we're envisioning it as a government-led. And the federal-provincial question is an interesting one because it would be a lot more efficient if it were federal. But also there are provincial level challenges that shouldn't necessarily be controlled by an only federal level entity. So we kind of see as a federal umbrella organization that is kind of directing and connecting the activities of provincial bases. So we've actually been working on pitching it as such. The two individuals within the CEU who have been working on this the most are myself in Ontario and Juan Vargas, who's our prairies coordinator. So We've been pitching people in Ontario and in the prairies to support provincial-based organizations with the understanding that that would eventually lead into this kind of overarching Canada-wide program that supports and feeds into these provincial-level entities, which I hope makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And so I'd be curious to hear how you sort of imagine, like pretend you're a single person, you're a youth right now in the context of, of this program. How do we sort of imagine the people going through the program and then what kind of work would they do? I think what would ideally happen is that you'd submit an application and then you'd kind of work through a process where you were spoken to and engaged with to figure out what it is you want to do, what it is you feel prepared to do. And that can be very general, but also very focused. Some people have very laser focused ideas of what they want their careers to look like or, or where they want their, contrib their contribution to land. And others just don't know. And the analogy I kind of use is one that I've heard before, particularly since moving to Canada, because where I used to live, protests or demonstrations of any kind are illegal. So I had no familiarity with the concept of 
feeling like you wanted to be part of a movement and just showing up to a, a march or a protest on the street. But a lot of people who have have told me they don't really feel welcome. They don't feel like they have anything to contribute. And we want the YCC to have a process where you show up and just expressing an interest means that we will find you something. Whether you want to write things, whether you want to help people, whether you want to build things, whether you want to write code, it does not matter. Anything and everything can be channeled into a climate action job just because without addressing this problem, nothing else matters. Not to get too kind of existential crisis about this, but nothing else matters. And so you would be interviewed and spoken to and engaged with to figure out what it is you want to do. And then you kind of go into a training and placement based process where we find something for you to do. And beyond that, I obviously can't give you specifics because this doesn't exist yet, but that's what I'm envisioning. And as sort of a, a follow-up to that, because like, for instance, I reference like the WPA back at the beginning of the call or, or earlier in the conversation. And that was very like infrastructure focused. It was yep. it was about rolling out new roads and new bridges and and that kind of the physical needs of, of a given country to given moment. What kind of work are you talking about within the context of, of the Youth Climate Corps? Well, it could be all of the, the things that you would normally think of when you think of a climate focused jobs program. And, you know, to get an idea of that, you can go to like any green jobs board and you'll see you'll see jobs for environmental technicians that are mitigating pollution. You'll see jobs for people who are doing emergency planning and preparedness to kind of build resilience to the kind of extreme weather events that climate change is going to inflict upon us in the coming years. But there's also roles that are more. They're less technically focused. So as an example, one of the principles of the CEU and kind of one of the, the founding principles of the, of the YCC would be that there, there's no climate justice without social justice. And indigenous rights are an enormous component of what we do. Fixing social inequity is one of is a critical component of solving this problem, of winning this fight. So all of the, the jobs that exist within those two spaces would also come under the umbrella of a YCC. If you want to do more social work, you could do that. If you want to work in the affordable housing space, you could do that. If you wanted to just be the kind of person who talks to people about their climate anxiety and helps mitigate that, create spaces where people can come together and exist in, in community to deal with the problem together or to deal with their anxieties together, you would be able to do that as well. Cool. And finally, I think this is my last question because you mentioned yourself and your colleague Juan and understanding that you have a limited amount of time that you've given yourself to bring about this project. How is your team advocating for it? Who are you talking to? What kind of moves are you making to make sure that that you can get something like this implemented within, within a short period of time? So at the moment, we're kind of seeding the idea to the people who could have a role in making it a reality. So Seth recently presented to the Parliament Parliamentary Finance Committee. Um, and Juan and I are contacting MPs and MPPs in our respective uh, provinces to get the idea through to them. And we're also talking to people who have the kind of mobilization power to let people to let those in power know that they support this and whose weight of opinion matters. So one of the the rules of the CEU is that we don't work with individuals in the context of helping them organize. We work with institutions. So our job is to get institutions on our side or get institutions to communicate to those in power what we're requesting of them. So we're working with faith communities, we're working with labor organizations, we're working with the kind of people who have this collective voice to get them to be talking about the YCC and other, other initiatives that we're, that we're coming up with, but to sort of create what Seth calls a drumbeat that can't be ignored. It's not enough to pitch a policy to people in government. 
there needs to be an understanding that people support this idea and will welcome it if it comes to fruition. So those are the two axes on which we're working. We're trying to get you know people who are already in government to see the merits of this idea, but then we're working with people who who those people listen to <laughs> to get them to be talking about it, to get them to be vocal and supporting it, and also to kind of get their input into what they would want it to look like in their communities. I think it would be very, again, vain of us to assume that we could on our own come up with a YCC that meets everyone's needs. We want to hear about what people need. We want to hear from communities and community organizations about the youth, where they're from, what do they want? What are, what are their thoughts and feelings about this? How would they change it? What would they add to the policy brief? So a lot of the, the meetings we've been having have been around that. It's we want you to support this idea. I want you to bring it up to those who matter and who can help us make it a reality. But you'll, we also want you to tell us what you would do differently, if anything. Are we actually meeting the needs of people who you could see benefiting from this program? Because we don't want it to be a sort of prescriptive thing that comes in and tells people, we're going to help you you know, do something great, but we're not going to listen to you about what would actually work for you and therefore defeat the purpose entirely. This is meant to be as much of a service to the people who are participating in it as it is to Canada as a whole who will benefit from you know, the benefits of combating climate change. For sure. That makes a lot of sense. And so if folks are listening to this and are justifiably excited about the opportunity and the possibility of this happening, how can they support you and the call to make this a reality? I think the first thing you should do is, is contact us. I'm hoping that you guys can provide contact information for the CEU in general, but also myself and Juan, because there, there are so many things we want to do. For instance, if you are in the constituency of an MP or an MPP that we've already talked to, you know, you and your neighborhood and your organizations that you are a part of can help us by telling them that you support this following up our conversations with them with an expression of support from the people that they're representing and whose voices they listen to. But also, you know, there are multiple roles within the YCC as it develops that are going to need people to fill them. So much like the, the intake process for the YCC as it will eventually be, we hope and expect, that's how we would do it for people now. Get in touch, tell us what is it, what it is that excites you about the YCC, what you feel like you want to do, and we'll, we'll help you help us. Amazing. Uh, so it is our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show. And so in one half second, <laughs> I'll throw back to you to to give a any thought you have for our general audience. But before I do, thank you so much, Seba Ibrahim, the Ontario organizer with Climate Emergency Unit. It's been so great talking to you about the Youth Climate Corps. We'll definitely post any links and connections to you in the in the show notes. But yeah, any last thoughts to our listeners? I think any last word that I would that I would say would be to the effect of people kind of tend to not think that climate change applies to them in any meaningful sense. They'll see that weather weather is getting worse, and you know if they have friends or family in, in other parts of the world that are being hit harder by climate change, they might think, oh, that's terrible. But climate change is an inevitability. It's it's a crisis that we're all going to feel the effects of in some way. But rather than letting that paralyze you with despair, make it be a challenge that you want to rise up and meet. You can do something about this. Everyone can. I firmly believe that every single person that's listening to the show and everyone who's not, everyone has a part to play. You just need to find out what it is. 